0: Welcome to this week's episode of Glam City. I'm Anna Clark. And I'm Tamsin Peach. And this is where we have our weekly history chat about what's on in history land around Sydney. Glam stands for galleries, libraries, archives and museums. And this is an opportunity to take you guys behind the scenes of Sydney's cultural institutions.
1: And today we have Holly Williams. Hello, Holly. Hello. Holly is co-founder of the Curators Department. And Curators Department was Holly co-founded with Glenn Barkley, who's an artist, and Iban Munez-Reed, who was an artist and is now kind of a curator. Uh, and the Curators Department works with artists to enrich uh, the diverse experiences of audiences through creative practice. And you've been
2: doing this for sort of 12 years, Holly, is that right? Have I got that right? I've been doing curating for more than 12 years now, so I must be close closer to 15, I guess. But the curators department was founded at the beginning of 2015. Uh
1: Aha. And so tell us a bit more about this kind of practice of bringing artists together with curators. Yeah.
2: So we do all sorts of things. So we work one-to-one with artists in their own practices, helping them with sort of mundane things like grant applications. But we also develop our own projects. So we curate shows or we apply for you know regional funding to do a project out of the cities we also work with different galleries so they'll commission us to curate something and then we'll invite artists in that way so uh, I guess we would consider ourselves artist led because we are quite nimble and working outside of an institution we can I guess be that interface that intermediary and advocating for what uh, works for artists the best that's our aim anyway
0: Historically, the curator was somebody who kept the objects uh, and what you're describing seems to be quite a more modern interpretation
2: of that. How do you think curating has changed
0: over the past few years or generations?
2: Well, now anyone can be a curator because you can curate a playlist or you can curate a festival, um, all that sort of uh, different interpretations. I think the role of the traditional curator who's a specialist in a particular field is still an important one. There's been a real push to interdisciplinarity and generalism, which is really great in lots of ways and has liberated a lot of institutions. Uh, But there is also, I think, certainly a role for the specialist curator um, and certainly curators like myself rely on those experts in a very narrow field uh, for the work that we do, which might be more interdisciplinary. Mm.
0: There's kind of an interesting relationship there that you're pointing to between the sort of curator as historian, if you like, and then the curator
2: as a creative. Is that how curator's department works? The specialist curators, I guess, that you were sort of alluding to, would work with a collection. So it's looking at the collection... Across generations. Yeah. So they're working, building something that might not have any particular relevance for us right now, but in 20 or 30 or 50 or 100 years, their work will be really important.
1: You were talking earlier about uh, how we're all curators now, and that's a kind of term that you see a lot
2: on Instagram and
1: Pinterest and these other sorts of digital platforms. You know, historically perhaps or traditionally, exhibitions were displayed chronologically. And some of what we see on the internet takes away that chronological focus and objects and, you know, whatever we're bringing together happens across space rather than across time. You know, is there a changing trend in curating museum exhibitions that mirror this or that does this reflect the trend in museums?
2: Well, I think the, the chronological display system is, is one, but probably prior to that you would have had the wunderkammer, so a whole lot of disparate content brought together to create a kind of sense of wonder. And so that actually probably predates curating as we know it. So the sort of linear curating, um, it's I guess it's all different ways of organising information and generating an experience. So certainly at the moment there's a trend to non-linear or non-time-based forms of curating and I sort of have wondered if that's because the rise of the internet means we're used to juxtapositions of content on the same screen or the same interface all at the same time and so we are much more adept at different types of content simultaneously Mm. and I think that is reflected in the kind of curating that we're seeing at the moment.
0: Does it make it harder to tell stories because they're not necessarily narrative-based or chronological or does that sort of uh, repositioning of content create new ways of telling stories?
2: I think both. (laughs) I would say both to that. Um, And in some ways the curator is there in some ways almost to set a scene and then the artist sort of ultimately is the one that's telling the story. Mm. Yeah.
0: With so many artists that you're dealing with, you know, ceramicists, painters, uh, street art people doing public performances. How do you think about who might work with a particular mm-hmm. exhibition that you are um, trying to put together and produce? Is it show by show, or do you have a do you have a sense of who's doing what? And you think, oh, I must get them to do work on this.
2: Most curators would have a kind of dream list, mm-hmm. you know, and I think. Across our careers we probably hope to work our way through many of them on the dream list and I've been really lucky that I've worked with many people who who I deeply respect and admire and some artists you end up working with repeatedly as well so Kenzie Patterson is an artist that I've sort of joked that I could put him into every show that I curate because I I find resonances in his practice with, with a lot of the ideas that I'm working with and what does he do he has he has mania sculptural practice. And what
0: sorts of things that pique your interest and uh, appeal to your eye?
2: I guess he repositions objects from everyday life and draws in his own personal biography into them so there's a kind of really nice poetry. I think one of the things that I'm particularly interested in is the way he has a very sort of solid actually quite historical research influences his work. Um, There's a work that's been recently shown at unsw galleries and it's now touring to new york and that's where he's got uh, the yellow cone from a money spinner so the show was about models so it had models of all different kinds and this object that he's repurposed actually is a mathematical model of an infinite negative curve as it turns out so the money spinner from a supermarket which collects coins he's He's taken that as a found object and included it in the exhibition, but he's also made a video where he got a 50-cent coin from... The moment where we changed into decimal currency and they minted coins that were 50 cent coins that were round and they had a very high silver content.
0: Oh, I remember them. I've got one, actually.
2: Oh, great. Well, you know, they, they ended up being taken out of circulation yeah. mainly because the silver content became too valuable. And they were
0: incredibly similar to the 20 cent coins, so you couldn't actually see very easily the difference between them.
2: Yes, and obviously that sort of ease of use. So he's um, he made a companion piece to the object video where this coin, this round coin, kind of spins endlessly. Around so I think that works on many levels to do with our relationship with the economics and um, yeah it's a very interesting artist. Hmm.
1: So speaking of money, at the moment you've got an exhibition, Creative Accounting. Where's that
2: happening? It is currently in its sixth venue, which is in Wagga Wagga. So it's been touring regionally, and it actually started its first iteration of that exhibition was here at UTS at the UTS Gallery. And in each venue I've been aiming to include things from the local historical collections or local regional artists.
1: So I'm at the moment reaching for my purse to get out a note. Here we are, a note. This is a fifty dollar note. Um, we it's got <laughs> lots
0: You're doing well, Tamson.
1: <laughs> plastic. <laughs> fifty bucks. Not bad. This is such an everyday object in all our lives, you know. And it's got all this iconography on it, but maybe we don't think about what it means and what goes, goes into it. Is that, is that some of the stuff you talk about in this exhibition?
2: Yeah, so rather than, I guess, making a show, I have my own, obviously, views on the world and I would say that I'm pretty left-wing in lots of ways, but rather than make a show that kind of sets out to say that capitalism is really bad, I just wanted to help open people's eyes to their relationship with money as a material object and also as a sister as an economic as part of an economic system that is incredibly pervasive. So pervasive that we almost don't think about it in particular terms apart from how much money we have or when we're going to get a pay rise. Um, So from a from an artistic point of view, coins and banknotes are really amazing examples of, of art, art forms across time they're also amazing forms of propaganda. It's really interesting that we actually carry around an image of the Queen. I mean, I still think that's sort of crazy. And we are really at the cusp where you can see, I mean, I've sort of said, oh, you can see in 15 years we won't use any, any hard currency anymore mm. in our daily lives. And people have said, no, no, that could be in five or 10 years. So it is also, I guess, a swan song mm. for the material currency that mm. we've certainly grown up with and... Hundreds of generations before us have grown up with. So, in the future, it is likely that it will just be digital. And mm. one of the things that I guess underscores this is when Yanis Varoufakis, the former Greek finance minister, was talking in Sydney a couple of years ago he was asked why they didn't pull out of the euro and he actually said one of the issues was that they didn't have any currency readily available and if they had if they had pulled out they would have actually needed to start printing drachma a year ago they would have needed to tell a company somewhere in the world please start making our money and that obviously would have leaked and then they would have, you know would have created a scandal it would have Erupted. So if they had been able to seamlessly transition to a digital currency at that time, that obviously things might have been quite different for Greece. I, I, it's so interesting you say that. I was listening to a,
1: another radio documentary actually about money, and uh, they were saying that digital currency, shift to digital, has increased our spending. So when you have to touch the physical mm. object and you know how much you've got in your wallet for that week – then your spending habits are different than if you are using an atm or you're paying on your credit card or you know now your phone and these other mechanisms
2: so the object itself constrains mm. us mm. well and because the bank the paper currency became a kind of bare object of trust so it's a it's a kind of Debt. you know you don't own the banknote; it always belongs to the governor of
1: the reserve bank of australia and the secretary of the treasury this australian note is legal tender throughout australia and its territories
2: that's right so all the visual devices that go into what we recognize as money and they started to be on credit cards as well in, in initially so credit cards needed to display or sort of gesture towards the fact that they were money but you can see that credit cards have moved very far away from that so that it, they're Visual uh, <laughs> reflection of them being money or money related is is kind of definitely pulled back, mm. but when yeah, I I can see definitely that if you don't have any clear relationship and you never see your earnings in your hand as solid cash, that it becomes a very abstract thought. And hopefully, we'll catch up with that. You know, our thinking will change over time.
0: Mm. It's interesting to think of this as an object of currency that we hold on to and it gives us a sense of financial literacy, if you like, that we have it in our pocket and we only have so much to spend, but that soon it's going to be a historical object, mm. not a financial object. Yeah,
2: and it's, and I think there are lots of stories that kind of find their way into the creative accounting show um, that talk about our shifting relationship with, with currency. So it includes some convict love tokens, which are really beautiful objects because they were created... By prisoners sitting on the prison ships in the Thames, waiting to be deported to Australia, and they didn't, they couldn't just pop down to Bunnings and get a something <laughs> solid that they could engrave for mm. their loved ones. What they had to hand was money, which obviously would have had real value to them at mm. that time, and they they elevated the emotional value above that. So they either did it themselves, or they would get someone to re to engrave on the top of. Oh the coin with yeah. a message for their family that they were leaving behind. And what were some of the messages that they... I mean, they were quite heartbreaking because they would usually have how many years the person was going to be transported. Oh, so they'd wow. say, you know, John Howe, 14 years, you know, and they would say, bear me always in your mind. And, Don't um, spend
0: this on a boiled lolly.
2: Well, you couldn't. I mean, that was the other thing is it's also a crime to deface currency, even in Australia right now. So they were kind of committing another crime to deface any coin mm.
0: Do you think part of it was a I mean obviously it's a, the act of a, someone very desperate but can we read it now as historians 200 years later as a sort of political statement
2: Well yes, I mean any any sort of Attacking an object of the crown is, is a political statement at some point. Mm. And certainly coins have provided, defaced currency has provided that. The suffragettes were into it and um, people draw nooses around the monarch's heads and things. And then they, these acts of sort of sedition would filter through the community. Mm. You can't do that on a Visa card, can you?
0: <laughs> no. <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, um, they had, my grandma gave me a wad of stickers, Caroline Chisholm stickers to stick on the $5 note. Uh, as an act of yep. sedition, if you like, and so all of my $5 notes duly had little Caroline Chisholm stickers stuck on them and then they went back out into, yep. the, into
1: the ether of corner shops <laughs> and paddle pops. I mean, uh, so in this exhibition, there's lots of other ways of thinking about currency, you know, uh, do, you, do you explore some of them? And I'm thinking things that circulate as, uh, as sort of forms of payment that might not be monetary
2: in the touring version, I've actually stayed away from some of the alternative currencies, not for any specific reason. There are sort of many models around. There were none that particularly grabbed me. But I do have works that talk about other ways of thinking about the economic system. So there's a work by an artist called Melanie Gilligan that she made shortly after the global financial crisis, where she is a middle-aged woman having a nervous breakdown, and she's actually in bo- she is the global economy. So it's this idea of the global economy as a person having a breakdown.
1: Fantastic. I mean, not fantastic, but I mean, really evocative way of thinking
2: through. Mm. Uh, So what does that artwork look like? What is it? It's a three-channel video piece. And I mean, I think one of the things I wanted people to come away with was it was really just to to inject a bit of destabilisation into our familiar understanding. Because the economic system... If you asked a room of economists, everyone would have a slightly different thought as to how it functions, what will happen next. There's no common agreement. We sort of think that there must be some rational truth underlying it all. And it's actually just very speculative and it's very easily swayed by our emotions. So the relationship between... Emotion and economics are so very, very closely aligned. How's the market feeling today? Mm. How's yeah, it? Depends what's happening on the peninsula. Yeah, <laughs> that's
0: right, right. You mined loads of archives for this project, uh, and one of them was the Westpac archives. Can you tell me what it was like delving into the bowels of a major financial institution?
2: Well, the Westpac Bank has its, it goes back to the earliest bank in Australia. Uh, so that it has, and it is also, as one of the largest banks in Australia, it has purchased or aggregated other archives mm, from other banks. So it sure. has the St. George Archives, for example, in there. And when I first went out there, it was in a really amazing huge warehouse with shelves crammed with wow. incredible objects of all sorts of things. They have, architectural fixtures from inside some of the old beautiful bank buildings that have been demolished. They have 10,000 architectural bank plans, some of which I've included in the tour. So they have all the ones from the banks that were built in regional areas, mainly in WA, where they would have – that would be half a house and half a bank. Mm. And I love the way that the strong room is always right next to the master bedroom. <laughs> in one of the earlier iterations of the show, I surveyed people – about where they hide their money. It was a kind of in the gallery and also you could do it online. And overwhelmingly people hide their money in their underwear drawer. And I really liked this idea that, I mean, an underwear drawer is no safer than any other drawer, but there's this idea that if you keep it close to mm. what contains your private parts, that it's safe. And similarly with the bank, you know, they put the strong room next to the bedroom because that's, you know, mm. closest to the to the bank manager's sleeping arrangements. So, yeah, that's, that's a really fascinating archive. But one of the things that I also brought in was that the first depositor into a bank in Australia was actually supposed to be was supposed to be a collection of very influential men, one of whom was Dr. John Harris, after whom Harris Street is named. But the night before the bank opened, Sergeant Jeremiah Murphy went I don't we don't know quite how this happened, but he managed to get one of the people who was going to be the new teller at the bank to take his deposit. So the first deposit into a bank in Australia was firstly it, kind of a bit shifty, but secondly, he deposited a really large sum. So he was effectively just a soldier, and he had this really large amount of money that he put into the bank, which was far more than his wages. And two things are really interesting. Was he doing something crooked on the side? But when you look into – so this was in 1817 – when you look into what he was doing in the year preceding this deposit, he had been sent out by Governor Macquarie, quote, in pursuit of natives. So there's a really potentially dark history in the, the that sort of the first money that's put into a bank. Was there the a
0: country. bounty on those?
2: Well, that's think? for another historian to do to mm-hmm. do all that research. But it is it is a very interesting thought that um, he either was doing some sort of trading on the side Especially or...
0: blood money, potentially.
2: Or, or he was maybe trading in rum or doing something else, you know. You're listening to
1: Glam City on 2SER 107.3. To download this podcast, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app. Just search for Glam City, that's all one word. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with support from 2SER.
0: Now we're talking today with Holly Williams from the Curators Department about some shows that she has at the moment and you were just talking then about the um, the Westpac archives. If you could be let loose on any archives in Australia, what do you think they would be?
2: I think Australia has really fascinating small regional historical collections and even even in sydney you know for the show that is currently on down at customs house that i co-curated with glenn barkley and a couple of other people from the curators department uh that we have borrowed some things from the mounted police museum and when i say museum it's sort of the size of this recording booth um, but it's filled with really interesting and eclectic objects. So there are lots of little specialist museums that can be discovered in different pockets of Australia. Probably I would say I would like to have a little wander through m- most mm. of them.
0: Can you tell us a little bit more about that uh, exhibition, Something Else is Alive, Sydney and the Animal Instinct, which is on at Customs House? Yeah, is so that right?
2: it just opened August and it's going to be running until February. So with that, we were invited to look at different things in the City of Sydney collections. Mm-hmm. So they have an art collection. They also have kind of object collections uh, and to work with some of the different areas there. And we also were able to commission four artists to produce work and related to the show. So the th- the theme is broadly animal mm-hmm. related, obviously, is in the title. And so we've got uh, Mylan Newen, who makes very delicate handcrafted objects to create an enormous school of koi fish swimming up through the city in the large model that's under the floor at Customs House. And we've got Michelle Boonprisat, who is a ceramicist who makes very quirky, uh, funny birds and cigarette butts and bags of dog poo and ibises and (laughs) pigeons and and a sort of beautiful installation of video piece that she's made as an homage to the pests that surround (laughs) us and Gary Trin is a photographer who has produced a really lovely series of I guess street photography and we've also got Black Douglas who has made a really great work to do with the bats and the Darug stories around the bats and one of the things,
1: listeners, you can see in this exhibition is Bailey Haggerty, the rescue dog. We had uh, Michael on from the National Maritime Museum. So we've heard a bit about Bailey
2: already. And he's uh, there's some video footage of him chasing seagulls live, dog cam. Yes, dog cam. One of the one of the privileges you get when you're a curator is you get to be the person that says, no, I'll do the dog filming. <laughs> so we worked with a videographer called Kuba Drobiewalski, who made uh, footage of Bailey running around, but I was—we also combined that with footage where Bailey's wearing a GoPro, and so he's obviously from his perspective. Um, one of the things with that is he also wears a life jacket all the time because he can get a bit excited and jump into the harbour, and so poor guy—he was a bit constrained because he was there with his life jacket, and then he's got a camera on, um, but he's a really—he's an amazing dog. And did you get a, a GoPro on the Peregrine Falcon? No, that's an, an amazing piece of footage that an employee actually at Westpac filmed, where a falcon. They are incredibly smart birds, the fastest animals. I believe, in the world. And they savvy enough to know, obviously skyscrapers have big up and down drafts that they can mm. exploit, but it chased a pigeon into the side of the building where it broke its neck and it fell onto a ledge just below the window. So it was obviously quite a strategic move. And then it proceeded over the course of a few days to kind of pick apart the pigeon. Disembowel
0: it on the window of... A skyscraper building. Yes. So m- that
2: that footage That's is a metaphor is there. for capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a really lovely scene right at the end, where the falcon has these like little downy pigeon feathers on his on his talons, which is sort of a bit sticky, obviously. And he, you can see he's trying to like shake them off his talons because <laughs> he's like, I want to fly off, but I've got this stuff stuck to me. You know, like when we walk out of the bathroom with a piece of toilet paper on our shoe. It's the same. <laughs> you can see it's the same thing. Like, damn.
0: One of the um, really fascinating-looking pieces of this exhibition are the letters of complaint from 19th-century Sydney residents to the City of Sydney, which I guess you got from the City of Sydney archives. Can you talk a little bit about them? Because they just sound like history gold.
2: Well, they really are. I mean, as much as anything for the really charming language as anything else – and some of them, some of the stories are quite terrible. There's a woman who's a widow, and she makes her living from renting out some rooms in her house. And her neighbour has built a stables right next to the bedrooms, which make a terrible smell. And there's, it was an old schoolhouse in Altimo that has a terrible effluvia rising from the stables that are underneath the schoolhouse. And this letter saying, you know, how can these children survive? the terrible smell so some of them are talking about I guess our uh, lifestyles with farmyard animals that used to live in the city and then there's also a couple of letters that chart the the fact that it's supposed that the former employees at the botanical gardens were burying dead dogs in the domain and they weren't burying them very well because they were coming up to the surface and making a really terrible stench and, uh, and, I, you know, I'm sure we don't walk through the domain and think, well, actually, there were lots of dead dogs being buried here on a regular basis. But it turns out in the 19th century, that was the case.
1: It says a lot about public space and how it's changed and who used it for what purposes. Like, that reminds me of stories about the commons, you know, mm. actually. that yeah. Um, you've also got 24-hour B-cam. There's ill porcelino, Sydney's wild boar with a nutlucky snout, like painting a picture of a city that is alive
2: with animal life, mm. which is perhaps not how we think about the city. What was the idea? Well, that very much is it. Actually, one of the ideas of the show for me came from taking the bus up Broadway and on the side of the Broadway shopping centre, there used to be a big billboard for the Buffalo Bill ice cream, I think it's that one, uh, which has a the ice cream sort of has a hole in it where there's a gunshot through a hat, I think. And every day when I'd get the bus home from work, I would see a pair of cockatoos. Mm. They had used this hollow to build a nest, and it was really lovely. You know, I could watch them.
0: Bubble Bill would be turning in his grave.
2: Well, he probably would be. And then, of course, one day the hire of the billboard by that oh. ice cream company had run out, and they was no longer there. But it was sort of this lovely moment every afternoon of watching this wildlife yeah. just being sustained around us. And so that's certainly part of it. I do have one burning question. Are there
1: cockroaches? I'm not from Sydney, right? And I moved here and there are cockroaches everywhere in Sydney.
2: Do they make it in? They don't make it in. We've been a bit light on the insect life, actually. Maybe they're under the floor. <laughs> no doubt they're in the exhibition. They're in the exhibition. <laughs> We do have a we do have an amazing puffer fish. So that's probably the weirdest thing in the show. We've brought together all of the animal related gifts that have been given to the city of Sydney as the sort of sister city or mayoral gifts. That's fantastic. It's a pretty eclectic and some might say unattractive bunch of things. But there's a really amazing puffer fish with the top hat in there. From whom? It's for a gift from Japan.
0: <laughs> Is it some weird reference to Fugu, Sydney Ciders? being poisoned
2: well the funny thing is i mean animals are used symbolically i guess because they represent something about the host country that's you know we've given away plenty of things with animals on them so who knows i mean it's a pretty it's a very charismatic object i think it's definitely worth going to have a look Mm. at yeah i definitely will that
0: sounds amazing uh now it's time for our glam slam segment which we do every week, where we look into our diaries and talk about some of the history-related events that are coming up. I'm scrolling, and, I'm scrolling. <laughs> and pick out a highlight of well, what's in your history calendar coming up.
1: Yeah, totally. I am really excited because the Belvoir Theatre uh, has Ibsen's Ghosts coming to town. And this is one of my uh, Henrik Ibsen uh, the playwright. This is one of my favourite uh, plays, in part because I think it's a historian's play. It's about the legacy of the past in the present and the multiple ways not attending to the past in the present can actually jeopardise that, uh, our lives. Uh, so I highly recommend everyone to go see it. It's on from the 16th of September to the 22nd of October. The Belvoir is a fabulous theatre in Redfern. Uh, get down there now.
0: How about you, Holly? What's happening in your history land?
2: In my history land, probably I'm more into the contemporary art land it's coming up at the end of September. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to my co curator in crime, Ivan Munez Reed's show that's going to be opening at the new Gertrude Street Studios down in Melbourne. It starts on the 28th of September, so I'm looking forward to that.
1: Great! <laughs>
0: for being with us here on glam city if you'd like to hear more for us head to the 2ser website at 2ser.com and you can also search for us wherever you get your podcasts if you want to get in touch shoot us an email glam city at 2ser.com glam Glam out out.